While Jesus was here on earth, he was constantly telling people that he was going to rise from the dead. He told this to his enemies, Matthew chapter 12. He said, for as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, that means himself, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus said this to his friends, Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed and be raised to life again on the third day. And he said this to the crowds that followed him, John chapter 2. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it back up. Then the crowd said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple in Jerusalem, and you will raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his own body. And you know, it's interesting that while Jesus was hanging on the cross and suffering and dying, that his enemies taunted him with this very claim of his. They said, Matthew 27, they said, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down from the cross and we will believe in you. My friends, everybody in Israel knew about Jesus' claim that he was going to rise from the dead. Even the rabbis, who didn't really follow his career all that closely, when they went to Pilate to ask for soldiers to guard the tomb, they said, Sir, to Pilate, we remember that when he was still alive, this deceiver said, After three days, I will rise again. My point is that Jesus' claim that he would rise from the dead was front page news all over Israel. But the real point is, did he do it? Well, I believe he did. And I have four pieces of compelling evidence that I would like to talk to you about to support the fact that I believe Jesus really rose from the dead. So here we go. Compelling piece of evidence number one is the evidence of the Roman soldiers. Remember, the Jewish leaders went to Pilate and they said in Matthew 27, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, this deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So, they said to Pilate, please command that his tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal his body and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. And then the rabbi said, this last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, take a squad of Roman soldiers and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went, the rabbis, and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal, a wax seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, a Roman security team like this in the days of Christ would have consisted of 15 enlisted men and one officer. And they would have had a deeply vested interest in making sure that nobody stole the body of Jesus. 
Because if a Roman soldier lost his prisoner, even his dead prisoner, he lost his life. We see a great example of this a little bit later in the New Testament in Acts chapter 16. There in Acts 16, the Apostle Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi, a city in northern Greece, for preaching the gospel. And they're chained to the wall, and in the middle of the night, they're singing hymns, and all of a sudden, this angel shows up and blows the doors off the prison and blows all the chains off of all the prisoners, not just Silas and Paul, and watch. Acts 16, the jailer, who happened to be a Roman soldier, awoke, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing for sure that the prisoners had escaped. Why was this Roman soldier going to kill himself? Well, well, what did the verse say? He was sure the prisoners had all run away, and he knew that if that happened, his superiors were going to kill him, so he figured, hey, I'll save them the trouble, and I'll just kill myself. And that's why Paul cried out to him and said, don't hurt yourself, for we are all here. Folks, this was not some antiquated law that nobody enforced anymore, that if a Roman soldier lost his prisoners, he died. This was not just some piece of legend. This really was the way it is. And so in light of that, do we really think that a group of unarmed women and fishermen could have gotten past these battle-hardened Roman soldiers who knew that their life was on the line if they lost the body of Jesus. Do we believe these women and fishermen could have stolen the body of Jesus? Impossible. Preposterous. Never could happen. And that leads me to our second piece of compelling evidence, and that is the evidence of Jesus' enemies. When the message that Jesus had risen from the dead began to circulate around Jerusalem, the rabbis were determined that they were going to stop this message at all costs. It started on the very day of the resurrection happened. Look, Matthew chapter 28, then the rabbis gave the soldiers, the ones guarding the tomb, a great sum of money and said, tell people that his disciples came at night and stole his body away while you were sleeping. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought if they lost their prisoner, they died. Well, watch. The rabbi said, and if this news, word, gets back to Pilate, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. How were they going to satisfy Pilate? They were going to bribe him. They were going to give him money not to kill these soldiers. And you know, the idea that the rabbis were trying to quelch any news of the resurrection kept on going. Even after Jesus' ascension back into heaven, Acts chapter 4 verse 1 says, As Peter and John were speaking to the crowd, the rabbis were greatly disturbed because they, Peter and John, were preaching Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. So they arrested Peter and John twice, and they beat Peter and John twice, and they commanded Peter and John twice that they were not to mention the resurrection ever again. 
Now, Peter and John didn't listen to him. But the question occurs to me, why did the rabbis have to spend all this money bribing these soldiers, bribing Pilate, and why did these rabbis have to go through all of this political trouble, arresting people, beating people? You know, it, it was a lot simpler than that. All they had to do was go to Jesus' tomb, roll away the rock, get his dead body, bring it out, put it on a cart, roll it through the streets of Jerusalem, show everybody his dead and decaying body, and finito, yeah, over. So why didn't they just do this? A lot cheaper, a lot easier. Why didn't they do that? Friends, it's very simple. There was no body in the tomb. There was no body to go get and put on a cart and roll through the city. And we've already agreed that no human person could have stolen the body because that's why the Roman soldiers were there. So if none of the disciples stole the body, and if the body still yet wasn't there, where did it go if not for the resurrection the way the Bible says? Compelling piece of evidence number three is the evidence of the eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you the message that I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now watch. And that He was... What's the next word? Ah. That is so wimpy. Come on, you can do better than that. That he was... There you go. By Peter. Then by the twelve apostles. After that, he was... Seen. Seen, right. By over 500 brethren at once. Most of whom are still alive to this day. It's almost as though Paul's saying, Hey, if you don't believe me that people saw the risen Christ... Go ask some of these 500 people and they'll tell you the same thing. Why in the world would Paul issue a challenge like that unless he knew the resurrection was real and all 500 of these witnesses would tell him the same thing? But he's not done yet. And after that, he, Christ, the risen Christ, was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me. You know, uh, this week I did a little bit of work in some books on evidence that are used in law schools today, current law schools, and I uh, learned a lot of interesting stuff. But I was particularly interested in the sections of these books on eyewitness testimony. And what I learned is that there is a growing trend today in jurisprudence to minimize the importance of eyewitness testimony. And the reason is simple. Well, actually, there are two. Number one, because eyewitness testimony so often disagrees. You know, three people saw him. One said he had a purple coat. One said he had a blue coat. And one said he had a green coat. And the other reason is because now DNA testing in many cases has overturned the testimony of eyewitnesses. But I noticed in these books 
the discussion was always about a couple of eyewitnesses, two, three, four, who disagreed and couldn't all get it right. But friends, there was never one example in this book of 500 eyewitnesses who were all willing to testify they saw the exact same thing, the risen Christ. I didn't see any examples like that. And maybe you've heard of this theorem. It's called Bayes' theorem. It is a mathematical formula that calculates how likely it is that an event really happened, the probability. And T, the letter T in this formula, stands for the number of eyewitness accounts that agree with one another. And I'm sure you can see from the formula that as T goes up, the probability that the event really happened goes up. You can see that, right? Yeah. Well, me neither. You know, I looked at that thing and just kind of went humma, 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 you know. But there are people who understand that formula. And one of them is Dr. John DePoe, who teaches at Western Michigan University. He's a mathematician there. And he wrote an article entitled, and I have to take a deep breath. Ready? Here's the article. A Bayesian analysis of the cumulative effects of independent eyewitness testimony for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whew! That's an article. And here's what he said, and I quote. He said, from the New Testament, one can count as many as 520 eyewitnesses to the resurrection. He goes on to say, given such a number of independent witnesses testifying that an event occurred, the probability that this event did indeed happen goes up exponentially and becomes, say the next three words, close to certain. Yeah. You say, but wait a minute, Lon, wait a minute. I mean, what if all these people were lying? I mean, what if all these people were running a con? What if it was all a big conspiracy and they all got together and decided that they were going to pull this over? You know, isn't that possible? Friends, that is not possible. It is impossible. And that's because of compelling piece of evidence number four, which is the evidence of the eyewitnesses' martyrdom. I trust you know that not a single eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection ever recanted their testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead and they had seen him. As a matter of fact, most of them ended up dying as martyrs rather than recant their testimony. Hey, James was martyred by Herod, Acts chapter 12. Stephen was martyred in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 7. Thomas was martyred in India. John Mark was martyred in Egypt. Philip was martyred in Turkey. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. The Apostle Paul was beheaded by Emperor Nero in Rome in 66 AD. And Nero also crucified the Apostle Peter upside down in Rome the very same year. But it wasn't just the apostles. Hundreds of these eyewitnesses also gave their lives rather than recant the resurrection. 
Roman historian Tacitus says about the rule of Nero, he says, and I quote, Christians were crucified or set on fire so that when darkness came, they burned like torches in the night. End of quote. Now, friends, listen here. People don't do this for a scam. People don't do this for a hoax. Somebody, because of the law of self-preservation, somebody cracks. Somebody breaks. Somebody turns. I mean, for goodness sake, we've all seen law and order. Yeah? I mean, somebody always turns. But it's interesting that Peter and James and Matthew and Paul and hundreds of other early Christians who saw the risen Christ, they didn't crack. They didn't turn. And the reason is because they weren't running a con. They had really seen the risen Christ and they were willing to die rather than deny it. So, let's summarize. How do we know the resurrection really happened? Well, number one, we have the evidence of the Roman soldiers, which makes human tampering with the body of Christ impossible. Number two, we have the evidence of Jesus' enemies, who could have stopped Christianity dead in its tracks by simply getting the body of Jesus out of the tomb and rolling it through the city of Jerusalem. But they never did that. Because they couldn't do that, there was no body to get. Number three, we have the evidence of the eyewitnesses, hundreds of whom agreed they had seen the risen Christ. And finally, we have the evidence of their martyrdom and their willingness to die rather than recant their testimony that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Now, can I prove to you in a test tube that Jesus rose from the dead? No, I can't. But can I give you such a preponderance of evidence that even Judge Judy would be convinced? Well, yeah, I just did. I just did. So let me take us back now to the wonderful promise about the afterlife that started us all off at the beginning of this message. Jesus said, John eleven twenty five, He who believes in me shall live in the afterlife even if he dies here on earth. You say, but Lon, wait a minute. Lots of religious leaders, lots of religions make great promises about the afterlife, huh? I mean, Islam does, Scientology does, Mormonism does, Buddhism does, Hinduism does, right? So how do we know which one of these are really right? Friends, it's real simple. Who rose from the dead and who didn't? Real simple. Hey, Muhammad didn't rise from the dead. Buddha didn't rise from the dead. L. Ron Hubbard didn't rise from the dead. Joseph Smith didn't rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And I love what the Bible says about this. The Bible says, Acts 17, God has given us, what's the next word? Proof. Proof. God has given us 
proof by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. God has given us proof of what? Well, for those of us who already believe in Christ, God has given us proof that we are not following some cleverly devised hoax, that we're not following some cleverly devised conspiracy, but that we are following the truth. And for those of us here who might be considering following Christ, God has given us proof that Jesus is the right way and that he can back up the promises he makes about the afterlife because he's alive forevermore to make sure those promises come true. Friend, listen to me. Follow a dead Savior and you'll end up just like him. But we don't have a dead Savior. We have a living Savior. Amen? Hey, we got a living Savior. And our living Savior said, the person who believes in me shall live in the afterlife even if they die here on earth. How great is it that by raising Jesus from the dead, God has given us proof that we are not following some kind of hoax, that we are not just doing wishful thinking when it comes to heaven. How great is that? Huh? Amen. And how great is it to know that because of the resurrection, we can face the grave. We can face death without fear because we know that our living risen Savior is right there to keep his promise and pick us up and usher us right through the portals of heaven. How great is that? Huh? Yeah? <clears throat> I remember uh, my mother-in-law, uh, who was a wonderful believer uh, for over 40 years. And back in 2005, when she died of cancer, she had uh, I mean, it was terrible. She had shrunk down to about 50 pounds. She wasn't eating. She wasn't drinking. Um, she could barely lift her head off the pillow. But uh, in her last week, she called all of her children in one at a time to be with her for a moment. And she called all of us, you know, son-in-laws in. And I'll never forget, we talked about a couple small items. And then this dear woman got this big smile on her face. And she lifted her head off the pillow about as much as was possible for her. And she smiled at me and she pointed her finger at me and she said, Hey, Lon, she said, I'll see you in heaven. And I, that's the last word she ever spoke to me. And I never forgot that because, folks, I want to tell you something. That woman wasn't just wishfully thinking. She had absolute utter assurance that the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, was waiting to take her there and that I would be behind her at some point and we'd see each other again. It was not a hope-so hope for this woman. It was a no-so hope. Now, this is how a believer with a living Savior faces the grave. Amen? This is how we do it.
And I just want to encourage all of us who know Christ. Hey, what a great thing God has given us. The knowledge that right on the other side of eternity is the Lord Christ saying, you know all those promises I made you? Well, I'm right here, alive forever, and I'm going to keep every single one of them to you. Folks, if we're not afraid to die, we're not afraid to live. How great is it to be in a situation where either way for us as believers, it's a win-win. Huh? To stay here. What did Paul say? He said to stay here is Christ and to die is gain. So how do you lose? Praise the Lord. With a living Savior, you can't. So that's what Easter is all about. It's about the fact that we in Christ can look the grave right in the eyeballs and say, you know what? I'm not afraid of you. No, no. Because my Savior conquered you. And my Savior's on the other side waiting for me. And my Savior's greater than you. I'm not afraid of you. I have a living Savior. So we have a lot of us here today who are already following this living Savior. But we have a lot of us here who aren't. We're following dead saviors. Maybe it's religion. Maybe it's some leader. Maybe it's some philosophy. Maybe it's your own human effort to get into heaven or your own religious works to get into heaven uh, or your own trying to be a good person to get into heaven. Friends, these are all dead saviors. They're not going to get you anywhere. There's only one living savior in this universe and that's the risen, living Christ. And so... We're going to offer you the chance right now to trade in whatever dead saviors you've been following and take the risen savior for your life. Let's bow our heads right now. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, here's all we're going to do. I'm going to pray a short little prayer. And I'll pray one phrase at a time out loud. And I want you to pray that phrase right behind me, but silently. And all we're going to do is tell God that we're giving up all our dead saviors and we're embracing Christ as our living Savior. Right here today, Easter weekend, I can't think of a better time to do this. So here we go. You pray silently. I'll pray out loud. Lord Jesus, I come to you today because I believe the resurrection really happened. And I want to renounce today every dead Savior I've ever trusted to forgive my sins and get me to heaven. And instead, I want to embrace the living, risen Christ as my only Savior and my only hope of eternal life in heaven. Today I invite Jesus Christ into my life to be the Lord of my life. I repent and abdicate the throne of my life to Him. And I trust His work on the cross and His resurrection to purchase for me forgiveness of sin and eternity in heaven. I lay my life humbly at His feet today.
and surrender my life to Him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.